Hey, Gord. Julia. If you had the chance to talk to somebody who lived in an intentional community in Portugal, dedicated towards peace, love, and the environment, what might you be curious about, Gord? I'd want to know what their worldview was and how that leads them to think that they could help humanity move to a more peaceful state. Like, what are the levers? What are the mechanics of that? Interesting. Also, presumably within their community, they're in a kind of a social experiment, right? And they must, their their experiences must lead them to lead support to what they're saying. And so I'd be really interested to hear how they deal with community conflicts, group conflicts, individual conflicts inside the community. Well, guess what? What? That's what this podcast is about. Oh, yeah. This is the On Conflict Podcast. Deep conversations that will transform your relationship with conflict. Season 2, a focus on leadership. And now, your hosts, Julia Menard and Gordon White. I'm Julia Menard. And I'm Gordon White. Welcome to Season 2 of On Conflict. Today, we're pleased to have the opportunity to speak with Martin Vignecki from the community of Tamara. And the way we'll start is, Martin, we would love for you to um, share with our listeners, who are you? (laughs) Having me, first of all. So my name, yeah, was already said. I'm Martin Mignecki. I am 29 years old. I originally come from Germany. And I have spent basically my adult life in a community called Timera, which... uh, is located in southern Portugal and is dedicated to um, modeling somewhat of a nonviolent culture. And in Tamara, I am um, responsible for a lot of the external work in terms of networking and communication and international relations. And I'm also a writer and an, and an activist also involved in some of the environmental struggles here in Portugal. Say a little more, Martin, about how you, your journey, how you came from being an adolescent to mm-hmm. uh, gaining this interest and ending up in tomorrow. As long as I remember, I have always had this somehow sense of belonging or being responsible for the larger community, whatever that was, whether it was my class in school or whether it was somewhat a sense of being not just this passive member of society, but somewhat feeling responsibility. Actually, this has been very early for me. And now seeing actually all these teenagers on the street in response to the climate issue, I I feel like reminded of how I felt back then. And when I hit puberty, I like was 14, 15, I just had this awakening in regards to what is happening in the world, which was related to this resurgence of, of, of uh, the fascist, uh, of a fascist movement in Eastern Germany where I was growing up, but also understanding what is hiding behind this benign term of uh, globalization and how this is connected to um, the way how people uh, are kind of growing up into this uh, consumerist uh, but inherently kind of meaningless society Uh, and so there was just this big rebellion starting in me as a young person and this huge uh, search for meaning 
And I was quite desperate, also hitting depression very early and just this deep sense of I want to contribute to a world that makes sense and I will not do this inside of a society where so much of the consumerism, so much of the wealth, the progress in, in quotation marks is bound to the systemic devastation of ecosystems and the exploitation of uh, big parts of the world. I mean, this economy would collapse if war was abolished. So, and, and those were insights that were starting to dawn. Uh, maybe I couldn't formulate them as clearly as I can now, but there was a sense of uh, this world is not right. And there was this uh, sentence by uh, this uh, Frankfurt School uh, philosopher um, Adorno who said, a wrong life can't be lived rightly. So you cannot have a, a right life inside of a wrong one. And so I was put on this quest with this sense of rebellion in me and I was looking in ecological groups and in spiritual groups and in political groups and I found different pieces of an answer but I still didn't find a perspective for a meaningful life for myself. And so getting to know a community that in a way set out to model on a small scale what a society would look like in which people would actually not need to go to a therapist in order to heal, or you would need to take people out of ecosystems in order for that ecosystem to heal, but to create a form of living together, where by the way we coexist, healing arises. Uh, this was just such a fundamental opening for me to a possibility for how I could use my life. And so, yeah, it was in a way amazing for me to get to know this place. And I came here as a student and then I ended up being a coworker. How long ago did you come to Tamara? Uh, 13 years ago. 13. Okay, I'm doing yeah. the math. 29 minus 13 would have been 16 years old. That's correct. Wow. <laughs> and when yeah. did you move into Tamara? That was then. 16. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I came first for education. Uh, Tamara had... I actually, when I when I came first, it was at the youth camp. I was 15, and I hadn't imagined uh, back then that I would actually end up living here. Uh, but then they put out this invitation for a three-year education program to basically gather the knowledge that is necessary to create a peace village. Uh, and it was the call was then in such a comprehensive and also radical intention that I just felt, yeah, this is. I can't see myself spending this time in school, uh, in conventional school, while, while I could also be studying this. So it was like, yeah, I was being very stubborn my, to my poor parents. But <laughs> That's what I was wondering. I'm thinking, what are your parents thinking? 16, yeah. off you go. Yeah, yeah they were quite worried. Uh, but in the end, also, for them getting to know Tamara, uh, this was also like, like they're still in, in, the, in the life that they have, that they lived back then, but actually it has also become a reference of hope for them. So, yeah, this is, I'm glad that there was um, at peace with my life path. <laughs> yes, beautiful, Martin. Thank you for sharing that very much. Uh -huh. Yeah, so could you um, explain to our listeners a little bit about how Tamara is organized and particularly how you work with conflict when it arises in your community? what it means to you and how you respond to it and how you make use of it. Yeah. And maybe, sorry, mm -hmm. just the basic orientation to, to what is Tamara. Right. 
So Tamara is an intentional community and a peace research and education center in southern Portugal. The community itself that uh, Tamara is a, a creation of actually started over 40 years ago in Germany. It uh, was founded in the after waves of the leftist student movement of the late 60s. And um, its founder being one of the um, spokespeople and uh, known authors um, at the nexus of Marxism and psychology back then. So he kind of uh, put forward the thesis that revolution without emancipation on the inner would ultimately result in a counter-revolution and that the issues um, of fear and competition and jealousy and all the kind of interpersonal issues that are coming up in the activist groups cannot be ignored when we are trying to, to create systemic change in society. And these ideas didn't really find an entrance into the political movement, which in a way stayed really fixated on this materialistic, economistic track. And so ultimately it led uh, Dieter Doom to to this point of giving up his political path as an activist and just invest everything into creating a group that would model those ideas. Um, and so the project um, in 1995, after yeah, 18 years of radical community experimentation, came to Portugal to create what um, they called and we still call a healing biotope so which um, is a community in which the relation between people, all kinds of people actually, between parents and children, because between men and women, between the generations, but also the relations between people and animals and all beings of nature um, is based on trust and uh, cooperation. So this is in a way a very, this is the project in a way is a, is a research center that operates with a very radical ambition, which is that in no form of relation inside of this societal microcosm are we accomplices in a system uh, of violence and fear. And of course, this is, if you look at it, this seems as an almost impossible goal because everywhere, um, no matter whether it's in our consumerism habits or whether it's in our interpersonal relationships, we are participating in in those habits, but I, and I guess this also leads me to the point: how do, how are we dealing with conflict? Um, for, for us, it's a lot about turning ourselves as people and as a community into the research object that we ourselves are looking at. Into how does conflict arise? So, a, a, a central um, observation that has been made uh, over and over again in this work especially as we are looking into how does conflict arise between men and women, between parents and children, between the generations, you're seeing that what is happening in a group in a way reflects what is happening on the bigger global scales, what is happening between peoples, between different religious groups in the world. So in a way, when you can resolve the traumatic layers that are being touched and that then lead to these patterns of fear and defense and victims and perpetrators, when you can really understand that and, and in a way permeate it with consciousness, you resolve conflict 
and you also gain knowledge about something that is happening as a dynamic in the world. So the way how we approach conflict has a lot to do with, with gaining consciousness. So there is this idea that uh, where there is consciousness, there can be no war. This is actually something that um, another co-founder, Sabine Lichtenfels, said. Yeah, and another part of it is that that in a way also we see the conflicts as as inherently interrelated. So that, like our exploitation of the earth and our lack of truth and the suppression in of our own life energies are not two separate things, but they are they are interconnected. So if we want to end the war um, that humanity is engaged in towards the planet, we also need to uh, look at how we are suppressing nature within us. And also vice versa. So, so, so we see that uh, if you really want to use conflict as a means of create creative evolution, we need to look at the wholeness of of life and not just say, okay, here is one conflict and we are we are solving it because the whole system that is producing these contact uh, conflicts just remains um, the same and uh, keeps on perpetuating itself. Thank you. And there's a couple of key themes I'd like to explore with you. The two that caught my ear, one was the quote by Sabine, the direction that you had mentioned around that gaining, if we gain consciousness, there can be no wars. So I'm curious about that. Can you speak a little bit more about how one gains consciousness? What does that mean? And then I'll leave the other thread after. Thank you for this question. Um, it's seems like that a lot of the eruptions of aggression and violence and all the way to war happens in a space where an energy that had been held back before and that is not connected with our conscious reflection in a way breaks itself free in or as an you could say as a subconscious attempt of liberation but a lot of uh, the destruction and also like if you have done that and then um, the next day or the next year or the next life perhaps <laughs> um, you feel sorry and regret for that you realize uh, my consciousness wasn't present in the situation and so the work in the way that we are doing is actually on different levels one I would say the most basic level is is, is the community level where it is actually important when you acknowledge that, that we have layers inside ourselves that are where we are not innocent, but where we, of course, have all of us, we have these put, um, these potentials of aggression and fear in us because we come out of a society where, in a way, fear and anger are just the two uh, flip sides of a, of a basic conditioning of, of, a, of a person who, um, or of humanity that cannot really express itself freely. So, so if we accept that, then it is, it, is in, it is logical that if you want to create a community of trust, you have to be able to address each other in this way. Like you don't just work on, on conflict once there is an eruption, but there is a process of, of self-reflection and also of social transparency where people undergo a process of making visible to each other and giving feedback to each other about what is happening inside of themselves and also reflecting to one another what they perceive. And actually this is 
this is like a logic of life. Like in living organisms, you have all the time, you have this process of, of feedback and communication and an organism is the more alive, the more feed, um, like creative feedback loops it has. This is in a way, a, a way of reclaiming truth because I could also say where there is truth, there can be no war. Like if uh, in many ways you can say the, those eruptions of anger, it's the eruption of a truth that had been held back and couldn't be articulated in a different way. And so um, this is really a social responsibility to create forms of life where people can make themselves visible to one another because it is always um, it is always the explosion of the other that suddenly comes up in, in these excesses that we're seeing in the Martin, world. And Martin, I just... I, this, you're saying so many things. I just can't resist any longer. To, <laughs> so okay. many things. Yeah, I have this to ask like her say something. Music. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I think one of the things you're saying is that you're involved in a with in relation to conflict. What you're doing is preemptive. In other words, if we live a different way, then the conflict that arises won't have the same destructive potency. And part of that living differently is communicating to each other on a relational level and socially kind of what's going on for me inside, which is disclosing some of them, perhaps what you, what you might describe as darker sides of yourself or being able to t bring those out. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say that's the starting point, point at least. It is, it is like, uh, I see it as a real precondition. I would say that a, a peace society is a society based on trust. And in order for trust to arise, you need to know that people will still stick with you if you show, even if you show the sides um, that may be more negative. Uh, like there is, there are all there are these corners inside of us where we think if I tell that to the people, then that's it. And the experience of, of a trust community actually is you reveal that, and they will be more connected to you because you have you have shown something of yourself. That, that creates deeper connection because the point is that most of these cases, and this is very beautiful, um, when you go, the deeper you go in, in this kind of self-revelation, the, the closer you come to, often you come to an experience where, where the whole group in a way knows it, where, where you feel like, ah, this is, this is truth. Like it's, it's like, a, it's, it's a, it's a visceral Ah, uh, relief <laughs> that this is expressed, and there is a sense of of solidarity that is even when you when you go into yeah, as I said, things that you would expect total judgment for, and so there is there is this really healing effect in this kind of self revelation. But I also want to say that the work is not limited to that. Like I think this is a very important starting point, but there are also other things that are really important, and I want to just mention two. One is that if you if you open these kind of processes, it is very tempting <laughs> to just, in a way, circle around them and be obsessed with them and and forget about uh, everything else. Like it's it is so um, fascinating, but also consuming. And I think it's also in a way the trap of psychology to just be in this psychologizing loop. And an important understanding for us really is this link to seeing how uh, much this kind of work is is connected to both global and historical processes. So it is important not to get lost in ourselves, but to know why are we doing this? Because we want to lay a foundation upon which 
larger scale systemic change can actually be successful. And also to know the other way around that the reason why I am suffering this kind of conflict is not only my own personal biography or um, the story of my ancestors, but it is it is the expression of, you could say, the clash of two systems, perhaps, like the system that dominant society has established versus the system of life, which is within me as um, the truth of my of my body, the truth of my heart, my soul. And, and we, we live in this contradiction, all of us, and we are all in different places, in a way, playing out different archetypal aspects of that. But it is important in order for, to know where we ourselves are in this conflict, to understand the bigger picture of the systems of oppression and domination that are ruling this world, but also to know what is the world of life. <laughs> There's so much I could ask. There's so much in what you're saying, Martin. Do you you have something in particular? Or? Sure, I I do. This is this is reaching back a little bit. Yeah, mine too. But, but the think. suggestion of re- kind of revelation of inner experience. You talk about the dark corners that would go on between people. I'm wondering if you're also promoting that or suggesting that that would be helpful at an institutional level or at an international level where ideally countries or large institutions would reveal their kind of dark parts of the the things they're struggling with to each other or move in a direction where that kind of dialogue might be possible. Are you thinking political too, Gordon? I am thinking everything, yeah, thinking on all different levels, yeah. It requires a lot of trust. Yeah, and and vulnerability. It 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 require it requires the um, the certainty in a way that the information that I'm putting out and what I'm showing of myself will not be misused in any way. Um, and so and so this is actually important because even like the communication methods that we are u- using um, to do this kind of work, people are asking, can we learn this and can we just uh, in, a, in a workshop like weekend workshop style kind of just acquire it so we can use it and we are. Like it's not a fundamental no, but we are also very careful of doing that because we know how much of a commitment to a path of solidarity that a group walks with each other um, it takes in order to do this work responsibly. Because you're you're opening, if if you're really looking into what prompts people on a deeper level, you come to potent stuff. And I would rather say that. There will be a, a political process of transformation um, as there are more and more communities that are doing this work um, that, that, in a way, establish this foundation of trust. And I think we can learn things out of that, which we can use on a political level. I don't, I don't know yet if we can translate it one to one, but I will say that one of the things that we are involved in here is an alliance of leaders of different social movements and indigenous communities and other kind of, um, let's say, more intentional communities like Tamara. And we are also, in a way, using this this kind of work in order to bring peacemakers and activists together um, in a space that they also wouldn't encounter in, in, in the normal kind of uh, work that they are doing. And so I think the question is really relevant. And at the time being, I would say for me, it is still a research of how do you take that out of this container and adapt it 
to what is happening in different communities or in society in a way that is really healing. Yeah. So just to build on that, Martin, I'm thinking you had said trust is such a key piece of the work. And I'm curious about your insights of what builds the trust as opposed to the communication skills per se, which presumably is part of it. But I think you're saying they have to land in the culture of or in the milieu of trust. And I'm curious what you see works to strengthen trust. Hmm. Certainly, it's a dynamic that we're often working with in, in, in our work in with yeah in conflict situations that we're involved in. Mm -hmm. Trust is very often a large factor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm. We can even start with how you define it. You know, <laughs> that's very interesting. <laughs> it it feels like it it feels like such a basic quality of life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's 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 very hard to define love in a way. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I don't know. It, like it feels like the more you come close to these fundamental um, parts or um, energies of life, the harder it gets to define them. Um, but I would say that trust has a lot to do with um, the capacity to um, show myself without defense to someone else, like that. Uh, this, like the, the capacity to be, yeah, in a way to let myself to let myself be seen uh, mm. in, a, in a in a deeper way. Mm. 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 Yeah, and I think there are many, like there there are quite some things. Because I said before that like uh, truth in communication is really essential for building trust, but I would also say that truth, as such, can also just be a weapon for war. You know, if you if you use it in order to tell the other what he has done and what you always wanted to tell him and all of this, and I would say that equally, uh, what is what is important is is an attitude of of empathy or of actually true curiosity uh, about the other it is and i think this is especially in the in the con in the, in the context of conflict or of um yeah even war situations in the world like uh, it is not enough to say i'm a i'm a peace worker and i'm on the good side and over there are the fascists and the warlords and and all the perpetrators like if we really want to make peace the question is, are we also ready to really listen to the other side and to understand what prompts them to do that? And I think this is an opening um, that is that is important. And of course, this is an extreme situation or an extreme example, but I think it is. this is true always. Do I want to tell something to the other or am I actually open for a conversation that might also transform me, like that, that might shift the viewpoint, because I think truth in the end is not just this thing that one person has and then get, puts to the other, but it is an evolving dynamic life process um, that, that lives through the openness of communication. Um, and then I would also say in a community context, reliability is a huge thing uh, that I actually know the other person will show up and yeah, to, to know that we're, that there is a sincerity. Like if I know that another person really cares, uh, for life, like, um, you know, 
there's this beautiful saying like I don't care how your night was and and what what you have suffered, but I you know I, I care. Will you get up in the morning and do what is necessary um, to take care of yeah, whatever it is, the community or the children or whatever? Like this this sense of of of, of standing. And I think also I would say in relation to what is happening in the world right now, where we are going through this worldwide crisis, but also this totalitarian threat in many ways, like part of that reliability is also are people participating in what is happening or are they just shutting themselves down? Because even there are all these empathetic communities and if it is a niche to to flee from what is happening in the world, it is also not fully truth and the le- the level of trust will also be limited. So I would also include that. Um, yeah. Since you've brought up the, the uh, topic area of um, fascism, or let's just say a political environment that you don't have affinity with, <laughs> um, how in some of your writing, you wrote a bit about how to respond to that without becoming it. I think you're suggesting that if you try to fight it, then you actually become it, and that's not helpful. Or you become a kind of reflection of it or something similar to it. So what's your pathway or suggestion for how to respond to those kind of political regimes that seem to be controlling and not helpful? So... A, th- uh, a thinker or a writer that's really influenced me um, in thinking on fascism was uh, Wilhelm Reich, who was a student of uh, Freud and then kind of went his own path, who really put forward this idea that uh, fascism is not so much a political um, ideology, it is it is much more the expression of an authoritarian character structure. So it is, in a, you could say in a way, it is the almost inevitable resolution of an inner conflict that happens inside people where there is so much of a of an inner separation between the kind of conscious polite bourgeois part and the suppressed underground or um, emotional substratum of all those bottled up life energies and um, that fascism in a way is so fascinating uh, for the for the people who follow it and uh, there is this uh, incredible phenomenon uh, that the countries can can shift almost overnight uh, from being this kind of polite, tame, bourgeois, uh, orderly society to being these kind of ruthless fascist regimes because there are leaders who understand how to tap into this subconscious emotional substratum of, of bottled up anger that the people themselves are not even aware of because they are in this kind of neurotic divide. And I think just understanding this idea changes our response to fascism because, yeah, you, you said that in the question, like that in a way when we are fighting fascism, we become uh, it in a way. I, I wouldn't say this necessarily about any kind of anti-fascist fight, but I experienced myself a certain susceptibility when you step into this ping pong of us versus them. And, you know, those are the, those are the um, evil ones. And there is a certain energy that comes up where I could, yeah, where, where at some point you, you, you develop these violent thoughts and, and you, you experience this, um, the fascination of uh, the, the magic of, of fight 
and so it and so it becomes um, it becomes this outlet for an energy that you hadn't even known before. And so I definitely got to know this being myself an anti-fascist activist. And then through understanding the thoughts of Wilhelm Reich, I, I went like, okay, wait a moment. It's like he is describing fascist structures, but I actually know this from like being an anti-fascist activist. Uh, <laughs> and so I think we have to find a way of addressing people that are in a way, uh, becoming followers of fascist movements in a way where, where we are really taking it from the angle of empathy of asking, why are people behaving the way they are behaving? Uh, and are, can we address the underlying hurt, um, that is prompting them to demand all immigrants to be banned, uh, for, uh, minority groups to be, uh, suppressed or even killed. This is not, this is not normal. This is not just human nature, but it is, it is the expression of an underlying pain. And I think, um, there is a real, we are getting to a real decision point in the world because the, the, um, systems, the social systems and the political and economic systems that we're having now, are more are, are more and more disintegrating, and then the question is: Will people stick fearfully in their identity groups, and then uh, have these kind of conflicts to one another, or are we able to embrace this disintegration as an opportunity? But this second, uh, an opportunity for 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 transformation and for um, also an ecological regeneration. But this second possibility, in a way, relies on an understanding of what is happening in ourselves and what is happening as we are driven by fear that really allows us then to make another choice. And, um, yeah, oh, there would be so much to say this, about this, but I think mm -hmm. I just leave it here. <laughs> so I have th three questions I really want to ask you. Um, but I think Julia has some questions too. So I'm just being transparent maybe about how we go about this. Yeah. Julia, go ahead. I've got a couple. I'll hang on. Wait, you sure? Mm -hmm. So if we go back to your community and you speak about the kind of revealing to each other, I'm envisioning or imagining that sometimes that would create conflict temporarily. And um, I just was wondering if you could say a bit about th that experience and if, yeah, how your community deals with that, what's what the attitude is to it. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it can be quite explosive <laughs> to bring up things that you wouldn't have usually brought up, or that um, yeah. In a way, when you go through these processes, you understand like why people in many cases prefer not to speak the truth, but rather kind of stay on a level where it's kind of okay. Uh, mm -hmm. And then it really relies on the container of the community. Like take a love conflict, like take a, take the conflict between two lovers and um, whatever it is, fear of loss, anger, jealousy. In a way, truth is necessary uh, for the two to really be able to figure out if they can walk a path together. But if you leave the two alone, like after a revelation was made by one and if you just leave the two alone and they in a way have to figure it out for themselves, then I think they will, uh, 
either they will fall apart as a couple or they will stick together, but they will certainly say, okay, let's not, let's not go there anymore uh, because it is, it is too troubling. And so I would say that it really needs the vessel of, of, a, of, a, of a community, of a group that responsibly deals with these conflicts. And those are things that you learn how to guide energy in a community. Like there is in a, in a, in a, in a functioning community, there is something like a, um, a collective intelligence where you, where you, where you, where you feel what is, what is to be done. So for example, also to have a good balance, when is it about going into the conflict and when is it about doing something different? Like when is it about having an evening where the whole group will just come together to sing songs or when do we need to celebrate? Like it's, I would say in the end, all of this or, or making art together or um, looking into the world, doing a project together, like all these things in a way are part of conflict work because um, we, we have to, in a way, look into the, into the trauma uh, and into the, into the conflict points, but also always make sure that we have enough life energy and healing powers in ourselves where we can do that in a way where we are not perpetuating the conflict by looking into it. So it's always, I would say it's always a fine balance between these two points. Like, and, and, and you can, you can kind of get lost in both ways. Like you can use many other things to distract yourself from conflict, but you can also get, get obsessed with conflict and then turn yourself in it uh, and, and never get out of the wheel. Yeah, and I would also say it's like intellectual work, like thinking work is, is so important, like to, in a way, place what is happening in a, in a bigger thought development is also really important um, so we can find purpose and orientation on a higher level. I'd like, I'd like to underline uh, a few of the things you've said. One is the importance of community or group in helping smaller units like two people deal with a a challenging conflict. And you've also talked about the requirement for the group itself to stay healthy and in balance to be able to do that in, in, in different ways, like you talked about being able to celebrate or be together and do things. And then that gives you the, the health and strength to then support the going into the trauma, conflict, the darker sides. Yeah. I, I think Julia would be good for you to Follow some of your thoughts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Ask. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just um, curious, actually, about the same theme that we're on at the moment around community. And you had said with economic and societal structures disintegrating, can we embrace this as an opportunity to reconstruct community? And I, and I'm wondering if you could land. Make, if you don't mind, make that a, a little bit more practical for somebody who might be listening at the moment and doesn't live in your community per se. You know, what, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for somebody living in their little communities, which might be work, a work team they have? They might have a soccer team. I mean, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? What are you seeing? I think some of it we can see in crisis situations or um, like even natural disasters or things like this where where people are suddenly no longer encountering each other in this anonymous way but where they are suddenly appreciating each other's humanity and each other's presence and where there is this sense of like I want to help and 
where people are self-organizing uh, aid and, 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 and where they're coming together or I don't know, there's all this beautiful work that is happening in Detroit, for example, with like after the economic crash of where people just got together and had all this kind of social projects and communitarian gardens and, and all of this. And in a way, this is this is what I this is something that I imagine uh, with the um, kind of growing disintegration of, of these of these large scale centralized systems that people will suddenly discover the power and the um, existential value of community, actually. And what this means, I don't think there is a there is an answer for everyone. I think everyone has to figure it out for themselves. But I think there is a, there's a beautiful orientation that might serve, which is a sentence that we are using often in, in, as, as we are building community, which is also a bit humorous. And it is like there is no community without me. <laughs> you know, like like in a way, this the sense that I don't belong to community is also an illusion. And and I would say that. Like the capitalist uh, dream has kind of um, kind of bought us into believing that that we actually just exist as these um, separate individual selves that are here to pursue this uh, path of private fulfillment in in profession and wealth and and uh, love. But actually, no, we are always in relation to other to other people. And what do we do if we acknowledge that? How do how do I engage? And it, it really is, it, it, it really requires a shift of this, um, of the like ideal of, 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 of living, uh, uh, where we have to, I think, especially as Westerners, uh, how to say, we have to take down this, this ideal in our minds, which separates us from a communitarian way of being. And then I think there are just, there are just ethical guidelines also of like, how can I, how can I support empathy Sorry, before um, we go to ethical guidelines, I just want to emphasize the first piece because it's I've, I've sort of got principles forming in my mind. Uh-huh. And I, I heard one clear principle, which is especially for people who are in individualistic or low context cultures, that there's a mind shift from thinking about I am alone or I'm in a dyad. But in fact, I'm embedded in a matrix of community. I just don't see it. Because right. I hear from you, the first invitation is to actually look and see how I'm embedded. And that that automatically would shift some of my thinking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Principle one. Yeah. OK. And now you were, yeah. I think you were going to shift to some potential guidelines for yeah. these communities. Yeah. Yeah. Or just just some. I feel like if people go into this um, shift of perception, there there are just natural there are just natural reactions like. How do I make this place that I live in more beautiful? Like, how do how do I engage with people in a way that increases empathy? How can I um, be a contribution for the well-being of the community? Like, those those would be questions that that will that will guide me to answers. And I think for it, it, the, the responses can be so different. Whether it is to bring people to bring people together, you know, you spoke about work colleagues. Uh, for for a deeper form of human immersion or whether it is to become an activist that stands up to destructive projects that are destroying ecosystems or or whether it you know i th- i think the i think the specifics of it they apply um to each person in each context but um there is a certain uh yeah awakening of we are communitarian beings and i think this shift is the is the inner revolution that is needed 
for us to, yeah, I would almost say for us to survive the climate crisis. Mm. Mm. Wow. That's mm. pretty fundamental. Thank you. Yeah, it's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if not, we are we are going for ecofascism, pretty much. I would say, like uh, the the powers that be will use the crisis as they have done uh, with shock doc- doctrines and all of this to further perpetuate the divisions in order to stay in the places where they are. But if people can actually learn the ways of community. Yeah, they can use the crisis as a as a positive transition to a nonviolent and and more regenerative uh, way of living. Mm-hmm. So it's a real decision point. Yeah. Mm. There's one area of your community, Martin, where we think you may have some unique experiences, or at least unique viewpoints, and that is the relationship between sexuality and conflict in the world. We'd love it if you can speak to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was speaking before about a little bit of history of the project and this um, idea of the relationship between the success of political change on the outer and the transformation of the inner and where this kind of put people into this research of how do we live together in a way that we can really resolve conflicts between one another in a way that the community of uh, reliable trust arises and in a way the project didn't initially like um, make sexuality the the key issue uh, but it just became so apparent that when you dig deeper and deeper and look at where many of these conflicts are rooted in you come to the area of sexuality love partnership also i, I would say the relationship between sexuality and the sacred whatever you want to define that as religion or God, like the, the words in a way don't matter, but in a way there is an inner, like there is a, there is a gravity center uh, in the human soul that has a lot to do with, with the sacred and with, with the erotic. You find those are linked um, then? Yeah. Like those, they're not identical, but there is a, like, uh, but they are, they are definitely strongly related um, and when they meet, it is like, I think it's the most potent soul power um, in, in, in humanity. And as sexuality is, is an area which, in a way, contains such a deep, holds such deep desires, such deep longings, um, such, a, such a potential also for healing and transformation, but also as we are coming out of a of a cultural era, uh, this whole patriarchal era where in a way sexuality was damned and demonized and especially female sexuality being so uh, terribly punished and prohibited. Um, it, it also holds uh, such a deep trauma and pain. And, and so when these, when you, when, when like the promise for uh, dissolution and surrender and, and, deep desire meets with this deep expectation of pain. Uh, you have an explosive cocktail, which upon which a society can actually not exist in a, in a, in a, in a peaceful manner because patriarchal society in a way, try to limit sexuality to the re- like to the relationship of marriage. Like in a way it, it was put in, into this, into the, into the, like it was generally banned from social life, from, 
the freedom of sexuality was was just uh, was was not allowed, but it was put into a into a into a little container in which it could be practiced. And actually, when you when you go into this container, you realize no, we you're dealing with a universal power that is so immense that hardly any couple is able to deal with it uh, on a one to one basis because it is simply it, like you're 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 putting a tornado. <laughs> into into a small box yeah it's it's um like the 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 form and the content do not correspond to one another and so there is a like sexuality is is dealt with in a very private way but actually when you look into what the people are going through in this area you find basic patterns that you that are that are of, of collective character and so in a way, the question is: Do we want to do? Do we want to stay on this level um, of denying, in a way, the the societal relevance of that, or do we want to acknowledge it, this issue, and and, and include it consciously in a process of societal healing? I think this is, in a way, also the the the, the question that comes out of that um, for and for anyone or for any movement that wants to really transform society in a humane way. What's well, so- a provocative way of seeing things for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. Well, you, one of the things you said is that you encountered that in your research and the development of your community as something that you couldn't really get around or avoid. It just it just became totally evident um, in your experience yeah. anyway. Yeah. And, I, and many communities, so many intentional communities also fail because of this, uh, because they're unable to actually deal with, with these energies. Like it's, like it requires a lot of wisdom, I would say, uh, and a lot of also a high decision to actually stick with each other to go through all these processes to really handle it in a in a humane way. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about this area, and it seems like there's a lot to be said, and perhaps a lot that is not understood. Because when you say that societally we've put sexuality into a container, a little container, I would say that that's where most of us are sitting. We've got our sexuality contained to having one relationship, or maybe some people start have started to talk about polyamorous relationships a little bit more commonly, but not really to talk about what it means to have sexuality, have societal relevance, and to incorporate it into societal healing. So when you use those words, Martin, in a way they mean nothing for me personally. Like I'm so Mm -hmm. curious. What do you mean? Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm also not just saying it in terms of lifestyle. I have to say like it's, I also want to really look at it in in terms of cultural development. Uh, I don't know um, if you or if if any of the listeners came across this book, uh, Sex at Dawn, which uh, has this anthropological view on sexuality and exploring in a way prehistory and saying that for most of the time uh, that we as humans have been around, we existed in these uh, communal clans where sexuality was just naturally shared as part of the communal existence. So this whole notion of private romance and this kind of marriage that is this small container in a way didn't um, even exist. So in a way, yeah, I'm referring to something that is... uh, in a way seems like to be out of another world, but in a way um, I also believe that as humans we have a certain memory um, of, of a different way of life. And I, I, I think I, I really want to stress this point that it's um, 
in a way, for, it is not for us about um, does somebody live monogamously or do they live polyamorously? Um, the point is really, do we create communities, like social like forms of, of, of coexistence where the issues of relationship between people are being dealt with consciously or do we, do we leave it up to individuals to, to figure it out by themselves? Uh, because this is like, if you speak of a society of solidarity and empathy, that exclude the issues that are in a way, in a way very crucial to uh, our, our human existence. It is also a contradiction. Yeah. So in a way, what we are doing has a lot to do with like many of the processes that I described before around transparency and truth and self-revelation and trust to also apply that to this area and, and to really ask the question, like, what does, what does truth mean? What does, um, like how much trust can we dare and what does it also mean to support each other in this area as we as we become more truthful human beings <laughs> okay so i think some of it it's interesting i'm getting a similar message that we spoke about earlier in terms of an awakening or an awareness of our communal nature I think perhaps there's an invitation in there, Martin, for us to be more aware of our sexual nature and to be transparent. Well, I mean, to allow that to enter into the communal dialogue, I think. Is that right? Right. Yeah. And I think, and this is, it's also such a healing step because, and this in itself requires a lot of trust, like to actually show one's uh, self in that energy because, uh, yeah, the, the, the kind of carpet of this uh, patriarchal history is is actually very powerful in how the truth of it has been has been so denied and so suppressed and to be able to to show like to to re to reveal what is really going on what what I truly desire what I love and experience acceptance for that is in itself um, a healing step because. We spoke before about the, the phenomenon of fascism and this character structure that Wilhelm Reich described was this was the division between this conscious, polite part, the rational part on top and this whole suppressed part. And a lot of it is about sexuality because it is this because those are the energies that that uh, that were simply not integrated in this kind of patriarchal society. So if if that can come can up again, can show itself again, if we can um be very honest about um the like the, the enormous amount of desire that is in in us and the enormous amount of longing for for sensuality and 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 sexuality and dissolution in this uh, sensual way in in a way it on, you can say it is um it it it, it is dehumanizing like you make yourself very vulnerable for ridicule for all of this for judgment but if 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 you if a community can do that and 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 stay with that truth they gain an enormous amount of of trust with one another and actually not dis disintegrate into an orgiastic chaos <laughs> uh, <laughs> but rather create an enormous amount of social stability because you integrate a power which otherwise and this is where the chaos comes from um is um like is constantly creating social disintegration because it is suppressed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I mean, incredibly powerful and profound. And at the same time, I don't know why, but my mind keeps going to a corporate context. And I'm thinking of somebody here in North America, possibly as a listener, thinking, um, I don't think I'm going to bring to my next team meeting that I find Jane attractive. So I, I'm not quite yeah. sure if you've had any opportunity to think about how this particular concept around um, acknowledgement of the spiritual and psychosocial eros could apply in such contexts. Yeah, it's a fascinating question, and uh, I don't I don't have a real answer for it. I must admit, um, but I will say that as people from all kinds of different societal positions visit Tamara, including also yeah leaders in all kinds of peacemaking organizations or even the corporate world, we started to create a program called the Global Love School, where those people come together to actually. Uh, go into this kind of space of truth around sexuality and different kinds of experiences, but also open this conversation. What does it mean for us to follow um, these ethics of truth and trust and transparency in the sexual area, even if we are not in Tamara and are kind of living our lives in the world? And yeah, it's it's an incredible uh, exploration and, and it's definitely not easy to uh, take this um, inquiry of truth uh, in this area out into the world. Mm-hmm. Well, that's wonderful that there is a structure with the Global Love School to continue to explore that inquiry. And it's certainly one of the places we connected because there is a documentary that's going to be coming out, I think, fairly soon. Yeah. About the Love School. That is correct. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. so that's going to be a great opportunity for people to learn more about some of the good work you're doing there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's it called? Do you know? I think, is it called The Love School at this point? It's called Love School, yeah. Love School, yeah. yeah. And I don't know when the release date is, but I'm imagining maybe sometime in 2020, mm-hmm. 2021? Yeah, spring 2020 is the current. Spring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ian McKenzie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank um, you. Thank yeah. you. Lovely, beautiful. Thank you, Martin, for your contributions. Yeah, thank you yeah. for these yeah. wonderful questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a big really journey. Enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, good. Good. Good, 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 great. If you love this episode of On Conflict, then help us out by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. And you can spread these big ideas too by sharing on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you show up online. Want to know more about us? Check out our website, onconflictpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. Now, go make the world a better place.